This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Why don't the Liberals have the courage to make sure the richest in Canada, including the web giants, pay their fair share? Then we have the news to cut one from Mr. Speaker, once again, the question should be asked to the Conservative that for 10 years, for 10, 10 full years, they did nothing, Mr. Speaker. On our side, we work and we put in place a panel that will give the recommendations and we will change the law, Mr. Speaker, a law that predates Internet. And while they did nothing, we'll make sure that anybody that participates in the system contributes to the system, Mr. Speaker, without any exception. The future of Canadian communications law has emerged as a political hot potato in recent weeks, with the various political parties engaged in finger-pointing over who is acting or failing to act on issues closely aligned to cultural policy. The list of political issues garnering attention continues to grow, with talk about Netflix sales taxes, internet company corporate taxes, mandated Canadian content contributions from online streaming services, support for local media, and more affordable broadband and wireless services. Just prior to the election call, I spoke with Dwayne Winsek, a professor at Carleton University who has been one of Canada's most prominent experts on communications and cultural policy. Winsek brings an interesting perspective to the debate as he leads the Canadian Media Research Concentration Project, a SHRC-funded initiative that is one of Canada's leading independent sources on the real data behind the sector. Each year, the project carefully produces reports on the media sector, dispelling some of the myths that have led to policy proposals that sometimes seem based more on political expedience rather than hard data. Our conversation started with his take on the initial report from the Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel, but quickly expanded into government policy, the tech clash against companies such as Google and Facebook, and what the numbers tell us about the state of media and advertising in Canada. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. A real pleasure to be with you here, Michael. Okay, so it's a pleasure for me, too. You're one of these people that focuses on so many issues that I also think about and focus on and uh, have made such an important contribution in recent years, especially in bringing forward data that that otherwise wasn't available or people haven't been talking about. So there's a lot that we can talk about. I, I thought we'd start with the state of broadcasting and telecommunications regulation, which, as our listeners know, and you obviously know, is the subject of a review right now from the Broadcast and Telecommunication Legislative Review Panel. They presented an initial What We Heard report last June. And I guess I'd start with sort of the open question. Your thoughts both on the process that we've seen to date and what they say they heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it was nice to finally get this uh, report out uh, in June. There's very little kind of active engagement uh, with the uh, you know many presentations or submissions that they had uh, to them, and you know I, I found the the format a bit uh, lightweight. And even though they you know present this report as not tipping their hand one way or another, I think it's clear uh, that they have uh, some pretty clear ideas in mind as to what they're going to uh, recommend. You can see that in the in the setup. 
of the report itself. It starts out uh, with telecommunications and the idea of uh, advancing access to telecommunications, and then reviews the you know the various proposals and the ideas facilities based uh, competition versus service based. But what I found right off the bat was they they narrowly frame telecommunications as if it's primarily an economic. Uh, issue and of course, economic issues are absolutely uh, critical. But to me, telecommunications is a lot more uh, about a lot more than just economic issues. Increasingly, it is central to the cultural policy issues that they've got front and center, and the way in which people use and access phones. These are also forms of expression right now, and I thought they could have been a lot more creative in how they they frame telecommunications. But it's a very instrumentalist, economistic kind of framing that makes it look like you know what the real business here is is the cultural policy stuff that they then get into as we you know kind of get the telecoms stuff out of the way. Okay, so you so your sense is they'll focus on access on pricing some of the issues of course that we've had successive governments talk about when it comes to telecom but the the real energy or the 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 real fight in a sense is you think going to come out on the cultural policy side that's really where it seems to be going i would have loved to have seen them engage much more systematically in the ideas around common carriage or as we often refer to it now as network neutrality. I mean, common carriage is really uh, about a number of things. It's about the non-discrimination and non-influence of network operators on the content and uses that people make of these uh, networks. It has a balancing of speech rights that basically says that, you know, when it comes to clashes between whose speech rights prevail, the network operators or those who use these networks, it's firmly uh, in the hands of network or of the uh, of the users of these networks. And so they could have opened up these kinds of questions. They could have dealt with the questions with respect to, you know, should we be using uh, common carrier facilities to go after a whole range of issues, whether it's the kind of the fair play redo uh, that we see in the wings of this uh, uh, review, um, or whether we should be using it, um, you know, to, to basically as a lever of influence to achieve uh, Canadian cultural policies. And they don't talk about any of that in the telecom section, but then they come down four square uh, behind this idea that there's almost, you know, unanimous uh, support for this idea that, you know, if you participate in the uh, the benefits of the Canadian cultural sector, then you ought to contribute uh, to it, which is a really uh, misleading way of framing these issues. So I think it's a very short sighted, truncated uh, view of uh, of internet access and telecommunications that I would have loved to have seen them blow the doors open on. Okay, so as much as they kind of left some of those issues to the side without really actively grappling with them, although they might well say the public didn't grapple with them enough either, if this is a what we heard document, the certainly the responses they got were, were heavily focused from some of the cultural sector participants. They, I think, see this as an opportunity to make changes that they've been lobbying for for a very long time. Is it your sense that that side of it is a bit of a done deal, that this notion of participation equals mandated contribution and the the market side of cultural policy just gets pushed completely to the side is kind of a done deal with respect to this, this panel? I mean, it certainly seems that they're 
the bulk of their emphasis is going to be on on cultural policy, and they've got a particular uh, set of ideas that seem to have uh, have seized most of the uh, committee members. Although I doubt if there's internal uh, consensus on this, um, but they certainly, you know, they are going for things that they've already teed up in the past and lost time and time again on. So the ISP levy, which they take a very capacious view of, and also fold mobile uh, uh, services, mobile wireless services into this as another source of contributions to uh, furthering the objectives of broadcasting uh, policy. We see them tee up the fair play uh, uh, proposal again uh, that the CRTC had rejected, albeit uh, on kind of, uh, let's say, technical terms. So there really is a sense of, yeah, this looks like a great big opportunity for a, for do-overs on a number of fronts in which they've lost for, for 20 years. And including, of course, on the exemption of over-the-top uh, internet-based streaming television and transactional video-on-demand uh, services. And here they clearly have the idea that, okay, we need to have this levy applied to mobile phone services and internet access. And we also need to reach for the European Union's audiovisual media services as the basic touchstone upon which, you know, all good things uh, will flow. So, and I think they do so in a very uh, selective and um, questionable way. You know, the interesting thing is I'm not opposed to really strong um, audiovisual media uh, policy or cultural policy, as they want to uh, call it. And I think we should have a robust uh, framework for dealing with cultural policy in the uh, Internet age. And I also think that the Audiovisual Media Services Directive does provide a useful touchstone. But the way in which it's been roped into the conversation here and selectively used and blind eyes turned to uh, things that the audiovisual media services may express in principle but actually doesn't carry through in practice, I think is quite astounding. And there's, a, there's a number of kind of sleights of hand, if you will, uh, that are at play when the audiovisual media services directive is mobilized. And I think that's to the extent that the report kind of follows the line set out by uh, Bell, by the CMPA, by ACTRA, the Writers Guild, I think that's pretty transparent. And it's not really surprising, I suppose, given the composition of the panel itself in the main. Can you drill down a little bit on on what you see on some of those sleights of hand? Where is Because there's a, there's been a tendency to argue that, you know, Canada is just playing catch up with what we see in other jurisdictions and and, and present this the, these potential reforms essentially in that light to say there's nothing particularly unique here. We're just trying to do what we see a lot of other jurisdictions doing. Yeah, sure. Well, I think one of the key things is that the Audiovisual Media Services Directive applies to 28 countries. And the targets that it sets are set on the basis of 28 participating countries in it, not one. But when you talk about the idea that 30% of your catalog should be set aside uh, for Canadian content and that this is somehow achieving parity with the European Union's uh, requirement that uh, OTT providers have 30% uh, content in their catalogs, this really, you know, is a sleight of hand insofar that we're comparing one country, Canada, with the combined uh, aspirations of 28 countries that comprise the, uh, the European Union. 
And there's another uh, really important thing that goes on here in that the Audiovisual Media Services Directive sets as a, as a, as a goal to aspire to this 30% of the catalog being comprised of, Europe, of original European uh, works. But when you look at some tables that have been put together that analyze the position of these statements in principle into what countries are actually doing, um, there's some really good research that a colleague of mine in uh, Brussels has put together. Uh, her name is Karen Donders. And what she shows is that, uh, or her research group shows, is that, yes, we've got 28 countries making commitments to these values, but in fact, only 12 countries have adopted any kind of formal measures to implement these things. And there's another uh, element, of course, beyond the, the 30% uh, catalog quotas, and that's the financial uh, contributions. And the same thing applies here. So we have this broad statement of aspirations, which is okay, but again, applies to 28 countries, not just one. And when you actually look at the number of countries that have adopted concrete measures to put anything into place, you find uh, two things. First of all, there's a dozen countries that have adopted measures that apply to domestic or European over-the-top providers, and only five that uh, uh, bring in the foreign OTT providers. So your, your Netflix, your Amazon Primes, uh, CBS All Access uh, into uh, the fold. So basically we've got a very small minority of European countries that are actually taking concrete measures, but you'd never know this by reading most of the submissions who are in, uh, that are in support of this uh, view of cultural policy. That disconnect between the data and, and the reality on the ground as opposed to the rhetoric, I, I'm curious as whether or not you think that there's the prospect of, of that permeating into the political realm, because we are into an election cycle now, and we've already had the Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez seemingly take a position that really reverses longstanding policy from, from the Liberals, uh, who previously were focused on discoverability, uh, on striking agreements such as the one that they did with Netflix, and suddenly now are moving from some form of contribution to the specifics around financial contributions. And it, it raises the question, you know, is this BTLR process, which you've already highlighted, may have already made up its mind on certain of these issues, but perhaps even more importantly, has the government already made up its mind? Sure. I think this is, a, you know, it's an important question. Um, and again, I, I mean, I, I, who knows? You know, it, it's hard to tell. But it certainly seems that uh, Pablo Rodriguez was, in my mind, a little out of line uh, in preempting where things could go by that statement, you know, which basically, um, you know, mirrored the one that the CRTC put out in its harness, so-called harnessing change uh, report and that kind of easy off the tongue line. If you benefit from the system, you have to contribute uh, from the system. You know, that does sound uh, equitable. But buried in that are a lot of very, very problematic assumptions. And so I think it was a real mistake uh, for uh, Minister Rodriguez to kind of step out of line that way. And I think that we have to have a much clearer understanding and a more open and basically honest uh, conversation about, you know, if we're going to go down this cultural policy route and again, as I say, I am actually I'm, I'm, I'm OK with this. I'm actually supportive uh, of it. We have to look at the Europeans' audiovisual service, uh, media services directive and the realities and, and take the best parts of that 
as opposed to this kind of mythical view of it as this kind of Herculean effort that's somehow going to uh, rescue Canadian culture from the ravishes of the vampire squids uh, from Silicon Valley, as I've come to call them uh, in light of certain think tanks like the Public Policy Forum's kind of demonization of the uh, foreign internet uh, companies here in uh, Canada. You know, so, you know, what they've also found in, in the European uh, situation is that these measures, you know, even in countries that adopt uh, in their own kind of enabling uh, uh, regulatory frameworks and legislation, the principle set out in the directive that there's a gap between what they aim to do and what they actually do. And so we need to be realistic that you can set goals all you want, but you need to be careful about uh, whether or not those goals and the means selected to get there are actually going to work. And so far, uh, Europe has had a very long time uh, or a very long experience with the Audiovisual Media Services Directive, and it has always fallen short of its own goals. And I think that needs to be re reflected more candidly in uh, the discussion. And the point isn't to say, you know, oh, look, our hands are tied, let's throw up our hands in failure already because the Europeans have failed to meet their goals, but rather to be realistic and to set uh, ambitious goals and good means to get there. Yeah. You mentioned the Silicon Valley giants, and that provides, I think, a, a good opportunity to shift focus just a little bit to the Googles and, and Facebooks of the world, which, of course, have become major policy targets as part of what I think is, is widely seen as a bit of a tech clash. That tends to focus on a pretty broad range of things, privacy, ad tech, competition, content regulation, and more. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on some of these issues and the way in which Canada, at least to date, has been going about trying to address some of the policy issues that are raised by these companies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think in, in some ways here we can say that there's a bit of a good news story in terms of the government is yet to kind of fold or succumb to the virulent tech clash that's uh, taking place. And it's made some uh, decent uh, changes that were made last December to the Canadian Elections Act that basically brought in uh, large uh, websites over X million uh, under the same um, rules with respect to advertising and finance limits and disclosure of, uh, of advertisers and rules around third-party advertising that have applied to broadcasters uh, for a long time, since the 1970s. And I think in this area, you know, when we're talking about functional equivalencies between electoral advertising, whether it's carried over print media, broadcasting media, or the internet, I'm okay with that. And I think this is a good step. And I think this is where, um, for example, Google and Twitter have done themselves no favor uh, whatsoever by basically saying that we're not going to comply. We're going to basically sit this one out. Google and uh, Twitter uh, refusal to comply really doesn't help themselves on the broader policy and public relations front, uh, frankly, here. Facebook, you see, folding in on this. And, you know, I think the others should have done this. And to my mind, the real problems stem uh, from the vertical integration between Google and Facebook's services that are public-facing 
and the back-end ad tech exchanges and ad exchanges that they operate. These things, by everybody's account that participates within that economic environment, the advertising market, essentially are really, really problematic. Basically, we have Google and Facebook owning their own um, advertising exchanges, controlling the currency upon which uh, those ad exchanges uh, work, and that's the personal data of their uh, users. And there's an incredible level of opacity surrounding how these operations uh, work, and there's no openness towards third-party accountability measures. So on the on the media side, then that that is another area that you spend a lot of time focusing on. Uh, your thoughts on the state of the market? Clearly, we've had the, the government moving towards a, a media bailout, a lot of lobbying, especially from some of the large media organizations for that. The proposal that targets one at, one segment of the Canadian media sphere, but not others. Um, where do you think we stand on that? And and do you are, do you line up? with this view that it's the Googles and Facebooks that are to blame for the issues and they ought to be the target of potential solutions. Yeah. Um, So I think there is some culpability that Google and Facebook have to um, basically own up to in that dominance over online advertising and this vertical integration back into the uh, ad exchanges and the opacity and the lack of accountability that exists there. So I think that is something that we really need to seriously think about. But then we need to open up the lens wider, which is what I always say in these kinds of discussions. And we need to realize first that the online advertising is just one part of the overall advertising uh, industry that exists. You know, when we compile advertising across all media, television, radio, newspapers, magazines, outdoor advertising, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And when we realize that, we can say, oh, well, online advertising, it's huge, it's grown fast, but it only accounts for half of all advertising uh, expenditures in Canada as a whole. And when we bring all advertising revenue into the picture, we see Google's respective uh, uh, places within the overall advertising environment decline. They're still significant, Okay, Google accounts for about a quarter of all of the 13 point something billion dollar advertising. Uh, That's significant. Uh, Facebook is around 10 percent, which is less than Bell, I think, is interesting. You know, Bell's is around 12 percent. Right. The point that I'm trying to make here is that their dominance diminishes once we bring in all advertising um, into uh, the picture. And when we look at the entire advertising uh, picture, what we see is. Canadian players like Bell, like Shaw, like Rogers, like the Globe and Mail, they emerge as very significant uh, players on the landscape. And by conventional measures of concentration, the entire advertising market is not concentrated in Canada. So this is something that uh, I think really needs to be uh, brought out to go now, you know, are they culpable for the woes uh, that uh, the Canadian media writ large are supposedly experiencing? Well, there is no crisis uh, writ large across the media. The media in Canada are generally thriving when we take a view of the whole that includes both the connectivity parts and the media content parts. And even if we just take out the the content media, the TV, the radio, newspapers, magazines, all that, and we look at that, 
there's been vast growth across you know these sectors of the media over the last uh, 10 years, the last 20 years, the last 30 years. There is no crisis writ large. Dwayne, I'm just, I'm just struck by the, the comment that there is no crisis, which of course runs so counter to so almost what's, what feels like accepted wisdom, at least amongst policymakers and certainly some of the politicians in this space. Uh, I'm curious, is the, is, you know, are there pockets where there are sources of concern and, and what do you think we ought to be doing about it if there are? Mm-hmm. Yes, there are certainly uh, pockets uh, where there is serious concern. And the common denominator behind the sectors that are in trouble, which are broadcast television, okay, newspapers and magazines, the common denominator behind all three of those is that they're all based or dependent upon advertising. Okay. Now, the question is, well, are the woes of these three sectors, can they be laid at the feet of the vampire squids of Google and Facebook? Well, the answer is no. All right. And I think the answer is no, because we see that the problems besetting, in particular, newspapers began long before the rise of Facebook and Google to the dominant spots in the online advertising uh, market uh, that they now that they now clearly have. All right. It goes back to the early to mid uh, 2000s. And, you know, there you see that advertising had already plateaued by around 2000 or revenue had already plateaued. Advertising revenue included for newspapers around 2004, 2005. Right. And it stays steady there until about 2008. The same thing is visible for broadcast television and for magazines. And then advertising begins to fall off a cliff. And why does it begin to fall off a cliff? Well, it falls off a cliff for a couple of reasons. One is that circulation levels for newspapers are going down. Viewership levels are going down for broadcast television. It begins to increase significantly at that time. But I think one of the underappreciated contributors here is the financial crisis. And whenever economies uh, do well or bad, advertising serves as the canary in the coal shaft. What you see is after 2008, advertising revenue across the board falls off a cliff for all media. The only exception is for online advertising. It actually stalls at that for a couple of years at that point in time and then resumes to grow very quickly. The overall advertising envelope basically flatlines at this point in time and it flatlines at exactly the point in time when Google and Facebook are becoming very significant players and essentially far more effective and efficient at delivering audiences to advertisers. And the real thing here is that advertisers have never love for television, for newspapers, for radio or magazines. They have basically found those media as effective ways of delivering audiences to advertisers. And in the 20th century, they were the most effective ways. And that caused all sorts of concerns, especially, you know, well known to communication and media scholars about the, you know, the Chinese walls that were supposed to exist between the editorial side and the advertising side that were consistently breached, the commercialization of of culture and so on and so forth. Right. 
But basically, what we have seen in the last decade is that advertisers have unhitched their wagons from traditional media and hitched them to uh, uh, online advertising. And the critics in Canada of the vampire squids here somehow think that we can basically, you know, uncouple uh, advertising from the online uh, universe and recouple it with the uh, with the traditional media and everything's going to be just fine. Well, no, it's not going to be. And the bigger question is, why on earth should we expect that a set of media that from about the 1920s became the major vehicles for advertising should have a permanent lock on advertising. They have no God-given right uh, to a permanent lock on advertising. And I think to pretend otherwise is really just kind of disingenuine. Yeah. Dwayne, you, you know, you bring so much historical background and context that I think is often so sorely missing. Before we close, I just wanted to give you a, a chance to talk a bit about the project that you've been involved with now for a number of years that really, I think, alone in Canada tries to bring an independent perspective on data into this into this discussion, because so often it's boils down to rhetoric as opposed to actual data, and you've been really making a, an amazingly important effort to try to bring real data to the discussion. Well, uh, thanks a lot uh, for those uh, kind and uh, supportive words, uh, Michael. Yeah, the project's been uh, a lot of fun. It's been a lot of work. Um, and as you know, and as some of your listeners will know, you know, basically we're trying to chart the growth and development of about a dozen and a half sectors of the media over uh, about a 35-year period of time uh, right now. And as you said before, you know, in the past, there's been nothing like this. And it, people have cobbled together data sets um, inconsistently in, on the spur of the moment in light of whatever the policy agenda of the day is. And so there's been a real lack of consistency in the data. And so what we've tried to do is, is basically build a system and make that available for anybody uh, to use, drawing mostly on publicly available uh, sources. And I think it's allowed us to really develop some keen insights uh, into uh, the nature of the media industries in Canada to come up with very realistic assessments of the real problems that do exist and realistic policy proposals to address uh, the problems where they are and to acknowledge the fact that you know, the headline here is that, you know, basically the media are not in crisis and those who are pretending otherwise um, are really, you know, basically telling, saying a Cassandra uh, type of uh, uh, threat um, to basically bolster a bunch of policy proposals that they would love to have but have never been able to get. Um, so the crisis narrative serves uh, policy pleading uh, and incumbent interest very well, but I think it serves Canadian citizens, uh, consumers, and really independent creators as well very, very badly. Dwayne, I think that's a perfect way to, to summarize both the data as well as the impact that it could and indeed I think it should have on the, on the policy discussions. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me, Michael. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and those who are listening. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod 
or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.